Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. So, 31 episodes in, and someone has finally noticed. I know, you're talking about that little thing we do each episode that no one seemed to have picked up on. And now someone sent us an email about it. Yes, and given us a compliment. Well, given me a compliment. You're such a team player, Dudding. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Wednesday the 6th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main stories, take a look at lockdown life, and then we take a closer look at one particular thing. So I've been searching the British news websites and none of them have the headline I was looking for. Surely someone could have come up with something like lockdown love rat or, or, I don't know, got the word bonk in there somewhere. Oh well. Anyway, the story in question is that Professor Neil Ferguson, that's a scientist whose advice led Britain into lockdown, has been forced to resign after breaking social distancing rules himself in order to meet his married lover. Ferguson from Imperial College did the remarkable work that showed that the herd immunity path Britain was following early on could lead to 500,000 deaths in the UK. But this week he was busted by the Daily Telegraph for allowing the woman he's having an affair with to visit him at his home in breach of lockdown rules. Puts going for a mountain bike ride into context, doesn't it? Anyway, I feel like we need something a little family friendly to balance that out. So there was a cute story in Stuff's Life and Style section today from the US about a dad who posts a daily bad dad joke in his front yard to entertain the neighbourhood. Well, I can exclusively reveal, because they're friends of mine, that there's a New Zealand version too. The Lorenzen family, just north of Auckland, have set up an isolation joke station. It's outside their place. The family each contribute a joke a day, which they put up on a huge billboard outside their front gate. Here's a recent favourite of mine. What is the best thing about Switzerland, Adam? I don't know, Eugene. What is the best thing about Switzerland? I don't know either, but its flag is a big plus. Good work, Georgia Lorenzen. That deserves a... All right, took me a while to remember the Swiss flag design, but I got there. Very good, very good. This one is better, though. Yesterday, I spotted an albino Dalmatian. It was the least I could have done for him. Right, later on the show, Professor Michael Plank from Te Punaha Matatini takes a break from his X and Y axes and curves and asymptotes and explains just how mathematicians are putting together the epidemiological models that are helping policymakers understand what COVID-19 might do next. But first, what's happened today? The run of zeros has been broken. Two new cases today. One of them is connected to the Marist College cluster, and there's a bit of a story to it. So it's a student who was contacted as part of the contact tracing in early April, had no symptoms, so wasn't tested. But now there's a push on to test all Marist College students, so this case has been picked up. Ashley Bloomfield described the test as a weak positive, where it's likely viral fragments had been detected, and the person quite likely isn't infectious. New Zealand has had its 21st COVID-19 death, another resident from the Rosewood Rest Home. This time a woman in her 60s, who Dr Bloomfield described as a much-loved member of the Rosewood community. And doctors in France say they've discovered evidence that shows coronavirus was in the country last year. So it was a patient who had pneumonia. Doctors have gone back and dug up an old sample from December 27. And lo and behold, they say, the patient had coronavirus. Now, if that's right, that's before Chinese authorities first reported this new illness to the World Health Organization and weeks before the first previously known case outside of China, which was on January 13 in Thailand. The patient in France had not travelled outside of the country, so it raises the question, 
Has coronavirus been circulating around the world longer than we've thought? So, Adam, have you packed your bags yet? What for? The GC, the Gold Coast, mate. All this talk of a trans-Tasman bubble. It's got me as excited as Crocodile Dundee at a knife convention. Steady on, mate. My bubble is still only four people. I'm not sure if I'm ready to expand it to include 25 million Australians. Yeah, maybe. Good point. Yeah. Okay, we should talk to someone who actually knows what's really going on. Henry Cook. He's a regular guest now from the Stuff Press Gallery. Henry, g'day. G'day. What is this talk of the bubble and what's the plan? It's really progressed quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. It kind of started as kind of an obvious bit of kind of media chatter a few weeks ago um, with, you know, some people clearly um, interested in the idea. If you asked a politician about it, no one was saying, oh, that's a stupid idea, but it was all very... You know, we're, we're dealing with our own health response first. Let's not talk too much about this. And then last week, Winston Peters, back in Parliament after a long time up north, kind of drove it forward a, a bit more seemingly. He said both of our countries were beating the crap out of COVID-19. Um, and, you know, we should we should move move swiftness to kind of try to establish uh, this trans-Tasman bubble. There was a little bit of confusion then about whether it was just a lifting of a travel ban for Australia, because currently Australians can't even come here and quarantine let alone come here without a quarantine. Uh, but then it, it kind, of, kind of became rapidly clear that actually what people were talking about was not just a lifting of a travel ban, but an actual lifting of the quarantine restriction too. So Australians could come here and immediately, you know, be out and about in the community. Because obviously, a, 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 you know, a vacation doesn't really make sense if you had to wait 14 days of quarantine at, at one end and then 14 days of quarantine at the other end as well. Early, earlier this week, things kind of, the, the Prime Minister kind of took it on, it seemed. The, the, the big thing that pushed that forward was on Monday she um, revealed that she was going to be joining Australia's National Cabinet meeting on Tuesday, which is kind of a meeting between the Prime Minister and all the heads of the territories and the states within Australia. And in doing that, kind of talked up the Trans-Tasman idea a lot um, after not being so hot on it a few weeks prior. And then as of Tuesday afternoon, coming out of that National Cabinet meeting, Ardern and uh, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison released a joint statement which kind of set out the fact that there was, you know, a work program, a commitment to get this going, but still a bit of caution about when it would happen. It's not going to be in a few weeks. It's going to be when it's safe, which is kind of a nebulous. Right. So it was initially sort of brought, made a real thing, as it were, by Peters. Ardern and Morrison talking about it obviously makes it you know, seem more solid. But who's sort of driving it? Yeah, I, I mean, to, to be fair, Peter's brought it out of the public a little bit. It, it does sound like, you know, Scott Morrison and Jacinda Ardern have been talking uh, almost daily recently. And, and I know Scott Morrison said yesterday that, you know, his call to do with a trans-Tasman bubble happened as, as early as last Thursday. So it's probably not purely Peter's. I, I think we will be driving it a bit, but it would be a mistake to say that only we're interested in it. I think Australia would love to have you know, our tourists going there. And uh, would love to kind of show off to the world that we can kind of, you know, break down these big border uh, fences that have been erected in the last couple of months. I, I also think there's been a lot of business pressure, I guess, driving this. The, the uh, One of the kind of trans-Tasman forums last night revealed that they had been pushing for it quite hard and had already started kind of a working group of experts led by kind of Auckland Airport and Sydney Airport. There is one big problem here, isn't there? So New Zealand and Australia have both made a pretty good fist of combating COVID-19 by international standards. But as we talk now, we've had a couple of days of zero new cases, while Australia still has a couple of dozen new cases a day. Is it safe for us to re-engage with them while that's still the situation? I guess the the point there is no, we would have already. It's not going to be, as the setting is now, it's going to be in probably at least a month, realistically more like two or three months time, when people hope that Australia will be in a similar situation we are. And 
will have, and I, and I think this is something to remember, Australia have very good contact tracing. We're, all, we're both going to have outbreaks at some point, probably, you know, one or two cases popping up. But the, the, the billowing test will be, can you immediately shut those down and then be pretty pretty certain that there's not, no other COVID kind of circulating in the community? Uh, and, and if that is secure, then, you know, maybe we, sh- we should be able to open up our borders. Hey, I've just had a thought. You may or may not be aware that we're conducting an important investigation following our flower investigation. That was WTF. This is WOBA. WOBA is Where's Our Bluetooth App. And Mm. it just struck me as you're talking there that if we have Australians coming here, it would make awfully good sense for us to be integrating our Bluetooth app with Australia's Bluetooth app, Mm. potentially. Yeah, so that would make some sense. And there was some suggestion in Australian media that we would be taking on the COVID safe app that Australia had been developing and have seen quite a lot of pick up on, which is itself based in the Singapore app. The Prime Minister was pretty, um, I'd say, lukewarm on that idea when asked about it yesterday. She's, she's kind of said, look, we're looking at apps, but she's, she's made clear that she doesn't see the apps as kind of a silver bullet. It's not like we need it. We need an app operational before we go to level two or anything. Henry, are there plans to expand the bubble to other countries? So not in the initial rollout, it's clear that in the initial kind of first first version of this, it would just be um, Australia and New Zealand. But uh, the joint statement did kind of include some kind of language about the Pacific, which obviously um, nations that are in our kind of neighbourhood, and several of them are actually totally COVID-free, and, and they would obviously love our tourism dollars, and we might love to go there. So I think it's, it's reasonable to expect that the first kind of cabs off the rack after um, Australia and New Zealand would be those Pacific Islands. Probably for us, the priority would be the realm countries that are kind of somewhat part of New Zealand. Like we, we look after their defence. That's, that's a somewhat insulting way to put it. But, but we, we have a, um, a much closer relationship to the countries um, in our realm, which are Niue, Tokelau, and principally the Cook Islands, which obviously mm-hmm. a lot of people would love to be able to go to Raro this winter. But then there's also Singapore. Some people are talking about Taiwan, although Taiwan can be troublesome given the uh, diplomatic uh, ramifications of that. Yes. Henry Cook, thanks as always. So, I've done some investigative reporting on our WOBA investigation. You know, where's our Bluetooth app? That's fantastic. Did you wear down some shoe leather? Track down some sources? No, not quite. I listened to another podcast. Oh. Wait a second. Don't tell me you're cheating on us with the BBC's coronavirus newscast. Afraid so. But look, it was all in aid of our investigation because they covered off what's happening with the UK's Bluetooth app. Remember, these are the smartphone applications that are being used around the world to supplement contact tracing. If you download the app, it keeps a track of who you've been in close proximity to. So if you test positive to COVID-19, there's a way to track down people you've been in contact with really quickly. So in the UK, they've already been trialling an app at a military base, and now they're rolling it out as a pilot program on the Isle of Wight. And what did they find out? It's interesting to listen to the debate that's been going on over there. It centres around a centralised versus decentralised system. The decentralised apps only store information on a user's phone, whereas the centralised approach means that some of the data is uploaded to the government. Obviously, there are privacy implications there. The UK has gone for a centralised approach, but says the data uploaded to the NHS is minimal to start with. Stuff like location tracking only gets uploaded if and when the user agrees, which is a voluntary opt-in system. I wonder if those are some of the conversations that are going on behind the scenes in New Zealand as we wait for hours. And remember, we just heard Henry Cook say the Prime Minister seems quite lukewarm about an app at this point. Yeah, hey, here's another angle though. We just got an email to viruspod at stuff.co.nz from Tom Middleton. He's an Australian in London who enjoys listening to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. He's studying for a master's in law. 
He wondered if the holdup in New Zealand might be to do with our privacy laws. Tom writes, I suspect that one reason why there has not been much movement on an app in New Zealand is that there are privacy concerns which are not on the same level as Australia or Singapore. Thanks for the tip, Tom. Keep your WOBA leads coming, people. And another email. Melissa Rag has sent an email that's so full of compliments that uh, we're just going to have to read them out. Sorry, I, we don't make the rules. Well, well, technically we do. Oh, yes, that's true. But in any case, the rules state that we have to read out compliments. And Melissa says, quote, I had been looking for a Kiwi podcast about this pandemic for a while before I stumbled across yours, and I love it. What's more, she says that the Hillary Barry episode had her laughing so loud that her flatmate, who was also working from home, had to come and check what was going on. This is good to hear, Melissa. Though I suspect Hilary Barry might be upset that someone was laughing at her perfectly serious gargling of the Star Trek theme. Also, you say your flatmate was also working from home. So unless you're a professional podcast reviewer, shouldn't you be doing something other than listening to Coronavirus NZ during your working hours? Anyway, there was one more compliment in there, Adam, and it's just for you. Melissa writes, Also, just wanted to say that I was very impressed by Adam's pronunciation of Kwahiri at the end of your podcast a few days, weeks, centuries ago. I'm from Kenya and I speak Swahili, so I'm fully qualified to give you an A plus for that. In case you missed it, it went like this. Kwahiri. Oh, shucks, Melissa. Eugene has indeed been entertaining himself by finding a different language for me to say goodbye in every single day, and you're the first person to have rated the pronunciation. I will confess that there's a bit of cramming that goes on using the play audio button in Google Translate, but I've checked the rule book, and using Google Translate is definitely allowed. Play playlist time. I'm not quite sure if this counts as a song as such, but it's definitely musical, and it captures, in just over 20 seconds, the essence of lockdown life and the way we've changed our work practices in a time of pandemic. It actually popped up in my Twitter feed a couple of weeks ago, but then I mislaid the link and then found it again, and here we are. Anyway, it's from someone who calls herself Makeshift Macaroni, and she posted on YouTube or TikTok or somewhere, and then it got recycled through all the social media a couple of weeks ago, and it's been viewed millions of times since then. So all you need to know, seeing this is a podcast and you can't see the video, is that the woman talking to the camera and picking up her ukulele, is very smiley and has a, a butter wouldn't melt vibe. And it goes like this. Hey, so as some of you guys might know, I'm a music teacher and I found that one of the best ways that I can process the whole transition to online learning and teaching is to write a song. So I wrote a song. I'd like to share that with you guys now. Here we go. sums things up. <laughs> I've watched that about 14 times and it makes me laugh every time. And uh, that wasn't me cutting it off like that. It just ends quite abruptly <laughs> mid-scream. In the past couple of months, it seems everyone has become an armchair epidemiologist, not to mention an expert in mathematical modelling. But we reckon it's good every now and then to talk to, you know, an actual expert. So Dr. Michael Plank is a professor in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Canterbury. He's also a principal investigator at 
Te Punaha Matatini, New Zealand's Centre of Research Excellence in Complex Systems and Data Analytics. Uh, so Dr. Plank has uh, created mathematical models for all sorts of systems, the behaviour of cells, the ecology of fish communities, the arrival of invasive species, uh, and much more besides. And recently he's been involved with the modelling that has fed into the decisions being made about New Zealand's COVID-19 response. So hello, Michael. Hello. We always like to start with the basics in these sort of science explainers. So can you start by telling us why are models useful for fighting an epidemic and how long have people been using them? Uh, so models are useful um, particularly for something like COVID because it's a completely new virus. We really don't know a lot about it. So we don't have previous outbreaks and previous data to, to compare to. So mathematical models are useful because an epidemic like this is, you know, it's really quite a complicated thing. There's a, a lot of factors involved in how quickly it spreads, uh, how many people get it and so on. So mathematical models can be useful in stripping away some of that complexity and sort of boiling it down to the really important things that are driving the, uh, the epidemic um, or hopefully <laughs> containing the epidemic. Um, and trying to focus on those important things and then think, thinking about how some of the actions we might take could affect, uh, affect those and then hopefully try and reduce the, the spread of the, of the virus. People have been using mathematical models of epidemics for a long time, um, but they're still a very active area of research. So there's still a lot of people developing more sophisticated models, uh, models that apply to specific um, diseases or in specific situations and ways that we can try and control those diseases. So when did you and Te Punaha Matatini get signed up to start modelling COVID-19 transmission for New Zealand? It started probably early March, um, I would say. I think there was a, a sort of an urgent need for some modelling capability in, in various parts of government. And we we built on a, you know, we built a sort of preliminary model, quite a simple model, um, and showed um, showed them some results, and I think that sparked a whole lot more questions. And the questions have been coming ever since, and so we've been scrambling, scrambling to sort of keep the models updated and um, and try and get that information to the people that need it. Where do you start? Do you I don't know download a spreadsheet from Epidemics R Us and and type in a few numbers, or or how does it work? Um, yeah, not quite. It's uh, so we have. A sort of a standard starting point, which is an SIR model. Um, so the SIR stands for susceptible, infectious and removed. So it's basically, you know, you start off with a population that's um, all susceptible, which we all are to COVID. Um, it's, a, it's a new virus. It's one that we don't have any previous immunity to. Um, and then the idea is that the susceptibles can become infectious as a result of contracting the virus. So you sort of track the numbers um, of susceptibles, the number of infectious and and the number of people recovered. And by working out the interactions between those three types of people, you can try and um, work out how quickly the virus will spread. What are the, uh, the data points that you're putting in? And, and what are the additional things you're putting in as time passes? I mean, the primary data is really the number of cases that we're getting um, in New Zealand. So the numbers that we're all getting used to seeing uh, Ashley Bloomfield read out in the, in the lunchtime updates. Um, obviously, that's the sort of thing that we're calibrating our model against. Uh, so we saw those go up uh, very quickly during the early early to mid-March. And then since we've ha had alert level four, obviously, those have started to come back down. So that's 
given us some information about the, the rates of transmission in our models. There are the case numbers, but then there are some interesting bits of data we've been seeing reported around physical movement based on cell tower data. I imagine there might be, eventually we're going to get information from, from apps without where people are. Is that kind of data useful to you in your modeling or is that a separate area? Uh, yeah, it has been, yeah. So, I mean, at the start of level four, for instance, we really had no idea how effective um, that was going to be in slowing down and ultimately reversing the spread of the virus. Um, it turned out it was a lot more, more, it was more effective than we thought. I think we sort of erred on the on the side of pessimism a bit and it, it outperformed what we were expecting. Um, but the telco data, the data from cell towers on how much people are moving around, and um, that was useful in those early stages in just getting a bit of an idea of how effective those restrictions had been in reducing the amount that people were traveling, reducing the amount they were interacting with other people and and therefore creating opportunities for the for the virus to spread. Um, so we're sort of pulling in information from a whole bunch of different um, sources just to try and get a, a bit of a feel for how um, how the virus transmission rates are likely to be changed as we go through these different alert levels. Let's talk about some of the, the mathematics and a, a phrase that people would have heard a lot of over the last few weeks and perhaps they don't quite understand what it means, and it's R0. Can you explain what is R0? So R0 is a, it's a number we call the basic reproduction number. It's just the average number of people that someone with the virus will infect. So, for example, if R0 is equal to 2, that means that someone with the virus is likely to pass that virus on to two new people. So we get two new cases. And that's an average number. So it could be that some, some people only pass it on to one person. Some people might pass it on to three or four. But on average, it's equal to two. Obviously, if one case turns into two new cases and those two turn into four, um, then very quickly you get a rapid um, increase in cases and a, and a, a pretty um, scary-looking epidemic. So all of the interventions that we've seen, the alert levels and so on, they're all aimed at trying to get that reproduction number to be less than one. Because if that number's less than one, we still get new cases, so there's still transmission. But if you start off with, let's say, 10 people um, that have the virus, and if R0 is 0.5, then each of those 10 people some of them don't pass it on to anyone. Some of them might pass it on to one or two. But on average, that 10, those 10 cases will turn into five. The five will turn into two and a half. Um, and so you get a decrease in the numbers over time. And how do, you, how do you figure it out? Do you simply look at the number of cases each day and do some maths? Or is it, is it fancier than that? How do you do it? So to start with, we were pulling in a lot of information from international studies. So obviously, the pandemic originated in China. So that was where the first studies were coming out from. They, they look at it in a, in, a, in a few different ways, but essentially you look at the number of uh, cases and how quickly that increases over time. And with a few assumptions, that allows you to, um, to, to get an estimate for what R0 is. Um, and R0 it will differ in different countries um, just as a result of different societies and different types of interactions that, that we have. But it gives you a starting point, a ballpark figure for what we expected R0 to be um, in New Zealand. Arnold is not actually a fixed number for any given virus, is it? So what values has Arnold had around the world and in New Zealand at different times? 
so I think the, um, you know, the, in the original, the early stages of the epidemic, when people weren't doing social distancing and so on as much, um, we think our best guess is that R0 was about two and a half or three. Um, but then obviously the social distancing has been used around the world to, to try and reduce R0, as well as other sort of tools like um, contact tracing um, and quarantine and things. Um, <clears throat> so we've seen R0 come down with various types of sort of um, government intervention to sort of one and a half um, down to one. And then ultimately, as we've seen in New Zealand, if we get it below one, that's when you start to see the case numbers start to decrease consistently over a, over a period of time. So we think in the um, before we went into alert level four, we think our naught was about 1.8 in New Zealand. That's our best estimate. Um, and then during level four, we think we got it down to about 0.5, which is which is really good. Um, it's hard to to make precise values for that, partly because we're in the lucky situation in New Zealand of not having had huge numbers of cases. So because we haven't had the huge numbers of cases we've seen elsewhere, um, we don't have massive amounts of data. That's a good problem to have when you're talking about a virus, um, but it means that our, our estimates of our north aren't um, super precise, but we're, we're pretty sure we got it down significantly under one at alert level four, we think about 0.5. Um, so what we're hoping to avoid is a, is a spike back up in the number of cases. If we do see that, that's a sign that our north's gone back up above one. Um, so that's the thing we're all sort of on alert for and trying to make sure we avoid that. There were lots of different projections made for New Zealand and abroad, and the numbers varied really quite wildly. I mean, at one point we had a prediction of up to 80,000 New Zealand deaths if we did nothing, another of 12,000, and then there were other numbers as well. How come predictions vary so wildly? The first thing I'd say about that is that I wouldn't wouldn't call it a prediction as such, um, I think it was a it was a a scenario that showed how bad it could be if we didn't do anything. And um, the the economists call this a counterfactual. It's the sort of do nothing scenario. We don't expect that that's necessarily going to happen because, as we've seen, no government in the world will sort of idly sit by while thousands of its citizens die of, of this virus. Um, but it just gave people a, an indication of what the scale of the, of the epidemic could be um, if, if we did nothing. That said, there's always quite a lot of uncertainty in these models, especially given the fact it's, a, as I said, a completely new virus. So we're always quite careful to try and communicate that uncertainty. So although we might be able to come up with a number, there's usually a, you know, a confidence interval or an error bar that goes along with that number. And, and those confidence intervals can be quite wide, meaning that there's quite a wide range of scenarios that we think could happen. Um, but in those early stages, all of those scenarios were not looking good. And they all would have led to pretty certainly overwhelming the, the health system, um, overwhelming our ICU facilities and, and very large numbers of people dying. As you say, it was counterfactual. So there was never really going to be a scenario where the models could be truly tested against a, a zero intervention response. But given that fact, is there any way of knowing which, if any, of the early models were better than others? Um, it is, it's difficult because, as you say, it's not a, it's not a scenario that's ever likely to, to eventuate. I think over time, all of these models get refined, particularly with, with COVID because we're learning so much more about it 
you know, every week. Um, there's some new data that comes out. And so we, you know, we update those models on a, on, a, on a continual basis. I mean, I would say from some of the things that we've seen in places like Italy and more recently in New York, if the virus gets out of control, you do see large numbers of fatalities. You do see a pretty um, severe death toll. But it's quite clear that this is a lot more serious than seasonal flu. So, yeah, which model was more precise at any given time? is difficult to say because you know, models are only only as good as the information that's available at that time, and they're all being refined and updated as we as we learn more. The conversation is is moving away from a straight public health emergency to a wider one around economic impact, mental health impacts, secondary health impacts. Are there models that can deal with that? There are. Um, I think they're they're being developed at the moment, and that's becoming a a more pressing target for um, for modeling groups around the world is to move from this sort of short-term uh, firefighting response where we're really just trying to avoid disaster, avoid um, healthcare systems from being completely overwhelmed into a slightly bigger picture, longer-term planning mode where we, as you say, um, try to factor in some of the economic effects um, and some of the societal effects um, into the modelling as well. So that's a more, it's a more difficult prospect because it's more than just modelling how many people are going to mm. get virus. Um, but there are groups around the world that are starting to work on that. And just finally, a, a kind of a general question really, but we live in a data-rich world now, don't we, with you know smartwatches and apps and swipe cards and credit cards that track our location and our purchases and our behaviour. Does that make modelling easier today than in the past? I don't know if it necessarily makes it easier. Um, it means there are more things to think about um, and there are more potential sources of information. But as I said, a lot of modeling is actually about stripping away the extraneous detail um, and the uh, and sort of getting it, boiling it down to what's the really important things that are affecting your outcomes. Um, so sometimes we might sort of pull in a bit of information from, as you say, the cell phone towers um, or by looking at um, FPOS transactions, something like that. But they're not really core parts of the of the model. It can help, um, but it, it also means you have to make sure you sift through all the, the noise and the unimportant detail and really focus in on what, what matters. In the introduction, we talked about all the other modelling projects you've worked on, from cells to fish to ecosystems. So once COVID-19 has left your entree, whenever that may be, what are you going to be looking at next? And, and are you looking forward to it? Um, yeah, I think um, I think COVID nineteen is probably going to be uh, around and um, and having you know important questions that need uh, models to try and help answer them for for quite a while to come. But yes, uh, I, I mean I continue to work on quite a wide range of of applications. One thing that I'm interested in looking at is um, endangered languages. Um, we started a project earlier this year looking at the number of people who um, speak Te Reo Māori and the number of people learning Te Reo Māori um, and comparing that with other endangered languages around the world. And that was a, a really interesting project, one that I think is really important for New Zealand. And so that's definitely one that I'm looking forward to, to getting back into. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Um, maybe we'll have to talk to you in a year or three and find out how that one's gone. Dr. Michael Plank, thank you very much. Thanks, pleasure to talk to you. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday the 6th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Henry Cook, Michael Plank, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartfeld and Carol Hirschfeld. 
You can find us on all the podcast apps and at the Stuff website. If you want to get in touch with us, email viruspod at stuff.co.nz, especially with your WOBA tips. Also, you want to support Stuff Journalism, don't you? Don't you? Well, the company's recently set up a system where you can make financial contributions via a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Super home.